Welcome to Telltales, an investing podcast hosted by Hunt Lawrence and Mike Nicoletti. As a reminder, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you. Let's get started. I'm sorry to be late. On oil and gas, not much is happening, to tell you the truth. Uh, oil, oil, I think, is... Uh, impacted by the variants um, and uh, <clears throat> concern about uh, recovery of demand being slowed down. Um, gas is uh, kind of weather-related. Uh, the uh, September-October are called the shoulder month, April-May, and, and then September and October. And I think demand is bound to go down a bit before you start to see winter demand for heating. Uh, and uh, so I think I think gas may be a little weak or whatever. Well, I guess just because of tightness, the LNG market is very, very strong. I mean, it's 17 in Japan and 16 in Europe. So uh, that's that's definitely going to help uh, the U.S. The, the only gas companies, I've said this before, are the Marcellus companies, especially now which was a Hainesville company is merging with CHK, which is a Marcellus company. None of Marcellus companies are paying dividends. And it's more a matter, I mean, we can live with Google not paying a dividend, but CarMax not paying a dividend, or Amazon not paying a dividend. But the problem is, in a capital-intensive business like oil and gas production, not paying a dividend is evidence that the management and the board are not confident that they can perform and to perform, you've got to spend not more than two-thirds of your cash flow and hold your production or hopefully have some increase in production. So it is a little disconcerting that EQT, Entero, Southwestern, CNX, Range. Now, uh, now CHK has said they're going to pay a dividend. I've got to get myself up the curve on CHK. Uh, but if you look at their announcement of buying, they said they're paying a dividend. I, I believe that if you're not paying a dividend, you're just going to be left to sell it, you know, three or four times EBITDA. I think in order to be investable in this business, given the, the record, you've got to have a dividend and you've got to be able to increase it every year. That's what EOG does. That's what uh, Pioneer does. That's what Diamondback does. That's what Cabot was doing. That's what Simrex is doing. And these gas companies have to have to get there. Um the, uh, the other thing I, I recommend is, uh, uh, because of a Yorktown project, I spent some time last weekend, <clears throat> I, may, I might have mentioned it last week, looking at EOG, and I really recommend the, uh, the second quarter interim report and the, uh, and the investor slides for EOG. They say that at $50 oil, <clears throat> their wells, their double premium wells, which they say are 80% of the wells they can drill and complete. Are paying out in six months, and I, because I think that's the way to accomplish this is to have uh, have wells uh, pay out quickly. It seems kind of odd. You think no, you need longer life wells, but in shale there just isn't longer life. So you've got to have the wells pay out quickly in order to accomplish that statistic, which is two thirds of your cash flow and and have some production growth. Um, <clears throat> in terms of macro oil and gas, um, you know, I, again, I think it's the impact of the variant on uh, on uh, demand, and especially demand in Asia. I mean, China seems to be going to a rolling lockdown. 
India seems to have come through the worst of it. But you know, it is a concern on uh, on volumes uh, on on demand and uh, uh, on uh, on uh, uh, on uh, macro uh, uh, macro as it affects energy or as it affects the capital market. Um, Mike and I talked earlier today. Normally, we don't do much rehearsal, but I'm going to talk first about uh, the impact of Afghanistan on uh, on U.S. politics. I think I talked last week on impact of Afghanistan on future oil supply, which I think is positive because uh, for all those Saudis in their 20s and 30s who supposedly are trying to be urged to be more modern, more secular. The fact that the Taliban rolled out, rolled into uh, all these provincial capitals and then Kabul, they'll be secretly uh, uh, rooting for them. So it, it will make it harder to move Saudi, you know, it, you know, away from uh, having an awful lot of influence from, you know, from uh, from the uh, Wahhabi uh, uh, clergy uh, and. Uh, so, uh, but in terms of the impact on U.S. politics, I mean, if 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 the midterms were this November, not next November, I mean, the Democrats would be would be have a very difficult time, I think, holding on to the House. And uh, if the presidential election were this November, not three Novembers from now, you know, I think uh, uh, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris would have great deal of trouble getting reelected. But of course, time goes on. Uh, one good thing I think is happening here is that uh, some of the easiness in the Fed, in other words, not wanting to start to taper. Uh, remember, they're, they're buying, they have been buying $120 billion of securities a month, $40 billion of mortgage bonds, and $80 billion of, uh, of uh, U.S. Treasuries. And they're going to, <clears throat> they, they really need, they're overdue in in starting to reduce that. Uh, they should have, I think, as early as, I don't know, coming out of the winter, uh, they should have cut, gradually cut the amount of mortgage bonds they're buying. But they haven't. I think one of the things that was going on here is uh, Jay Powell, who's the chairman, uh, <clears throat> doesn't want to be a one-term chairman. I mean, it's just like a president of the United States doesn't want to be a one-term president. They want a second term. I think he, you know, what is he going to do after being, I mean, he's been an investment banker and that he's been a private equity guy at Carlisle and he's been on the board. Now he's chairman. I'm sure he doesn't want to spend the next couple of years being former chairman. Uh, I think he wants to be reelected. Uh, apparently, uh, the Biden administration has announced that he is going to be reappointed rather than left Brainerd Bell. Bernie Sanders, Warren, a progressive wing of the party, wanted that Lara Brandert, who's been on the board, and she'd probably be okay, but she's nowhere near as experienced as he is. If he is announced as the person who's, I think part of it is the Biden administration tacking back to the middle after the problems they're having in uh, Afghanistan. I mean, just kind of looks like you know, horrible, and maybe it would have been horrible in any event, but certainly not being handled with much competence. So I think that's good for the capital markets. And with that, I want to turn it over to Mike so he can describe uh, <clears throat> what may happen in California with the uh, with the uh, trying to uh, 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 the governor uh, has to win a race. Uh, 
with like 40 other people and and uh, someone could become governor with like 15 percent of the vote. With, but with that, I want to turn it over to Michael. Leave you through it. Sure. So, so California's got kind of a funky uh, system, I guess. If, if the citizenry decides that they don't like the governor enough, well, he's inside of his term, they can petition to have a recall election. Um, and this this has happened once before, actually. Arnold Schwarzenegger is was the first, uh, to my knowledge, to be elected by process of recall. Um, and the way the election works, it's, I've just gotten a ballot in the mail last week. It's kind of interesting because uh, you, your first question is, do you want to recall um, uh, Gavin Newsom? And then question two is, who would you like to replace him? And that list of people is about 40 people long. Um, <clears throat> I'm looking at the, the polling stats right now. And the leading person, according to 538, is is um, a guy named Elder uh, Larry Elder. He's he's a he's got 19%. Uh, that's a lead. He's a Republican with a lead over a Democratic candidate of 9.1%. So you know, assuming uh, this actually gets recalled, then uh, we could have a flip to a Republican in California. Now the polls for actual, do we want to remove uh, Gavin Newsom from office? Right now it says 48.8% keep, 47.6% remove. So uh, I'd say that's close enough to say that we don't, we don't have enough information to tell. So this is all coming up on September 14th and we'll, we'll find out. Uh, but, but like Hunt said, the interesting part is somebody could, could win this theoretically with a very low percentage of the vote as low as maybe 10% if they were all spread out. Republicans haven't named a preferred candidate. So there are quite a few different Republican candidates um, on the ballot. So but I'll leave it at that up unless you've got some more questions. It all happens, I understand it, Mike, it all happens on the same day. In other words, you vote for recall or not, and then you vote for replacement all on the same ballot. That's correct. Yep. Wow. Terrific. Well, uh, with that, we're going to spring into uh, uh, investing. Uh, I did look at uh, Roblox and uh, Airbnb. I think they're interesting investments. I, I uh, the problem I have with Airbnb is um, that that uh, basically the the risk. I mean, you'd have the same problem with uh, you know hotel stock or uh, airline stock. I just believe that um, I'm not predicting, but it's possible that we'll just have variant after variant after variant. And, uh, uh, well, hey, uh, uh, Jay Powell's making a speech uh, at Jackson Hole. Normally, all these uh, central bankers and whatnot from all over the world gather in, central, in, in Jackson Hole. I mean, it's a nice, nice time to be in Wyoming, you know, the last week of August. Uh, the next to last week of August, but it's all virtual. Well, why is it virtual? It's because of the variants. And I just, <laughs> I, I, I don't think that we're talking about statewide lockdowns or whatnot, but the same concern about the, you know, oil demand, I think is, is, uh, it's going to impact travel. And the thing that I worry about in terms of oil demand, but also in travel, 
is that as we all have gone through, you know, these lockdowns of uh, not being able to travel and whatnot, I think you could see it in the spring uh, when it became possible to get on an airplane, have to wear a mask all the time. It was really a pickup. I mean, the airlines weren't able to perform. They they had, uh, you know, they had cut back too much. And, and uh, you know, some airlines, you know, just really were unable to perform. But I, I think that was kind of an unleashing of, you know, doing something that hadn't been done. But I'm more concerned about and concerned across the board, across all the investments uh, that you and I have or, or Brian R. has uh, in, in Oak Cliff is have our, have our behaviors. You know, once we do the catching up, you know, go to see friends or family or whatnot, then how much travel do we really do? Uh, I'm thinking that the uh, COVID and the response folks on a worldwide basis has changed the way we're going to behave once we have that official spurt. So Airbnb would be kind of vulnerable. As far as roadblocks, uh, I'm, I'm just kind of think that gaming is tricky. You know, if, if, if you have a, you know, I, I kind of classify as gaming, and if you have one that really catches on, you do well. But then if someone else comes on with one that's more popular, you don't do as well. But with that, I'm going to turn it over to Mike because, he, he has a much more sophisticated uh, view of both these companies, whether or not he wants to add them in his partnership. And he has two more that uh, we really want to cover the same and the remaining time. So over to you, Mike. Yeah, so so as far as Roblox and Airbnb, I don't have a position in either right now, and I, I don't know whether I, I would or not. My perspective on Roblox as of the moment is that I, I actually really like it from a business model perspective. I like it from a cash flow perspective. I like from a growth perspective. Um, but it is, at the end of the day, direct-to-consumer. And most of my area of competence is B2B. Um, so, you know, in thinking about the metaverse and what is going to happen as far as metaverses uh, and their impact on how we live as a society, I, I actually am more interested in the metaverse is created or a metaverses that are created around um, the way we work. And interestingly, just uh, yesterday or the day before um, Facebook announced their work product, a metaverse work product, which uh, the concept is that you'll be able to meet with people virtually using the Oculus headsets. And it's a very, very realistic experience. And I, I read a column by, uh, a tech strategy author that um, got an early introduction to this product and got to actually use it and experience it and spoke very positively of it. I think it's, so I think that, uh, I'll say all that because there's more than one way to win um, with this, this new technology. I don't, I, like I said, I don't feel as comfortable investing in uh, direct to consumer thing because uh, like, uh, like Hunt said, games are tricky. The actual games themselves are very tricky. If Roblox is successful as a platform, it doesn't matter because there's so many different creators creating games on that platform that, that you can win. But because it's more tailored towards fun and whatnot, um, it's just uh, more fickle as a business than a typical B2B business is. Um, and then as far as Airbnb goes, I think the business is, is fantastic. I also think 
um, and hope that there'll be a better buying opportunity than there is right now. Right now, we're seeing cash flow to return of the company, and a lot of that cash flow is due to restocking of their coffers that were drained during um, during COVID. And let me explain that very quickly. We, we talked about deferred revenue. Um, it's not just the deferred re- revenue. It's also the, the cash held on their books to be paid to to host. So, so when somebody books and prepaid, it's not just the fees that Amazon or that Airbnb holds on to, but it's also the uh, say Amazon's fees plus the, the money they're going to pay to the host. And when they got, they, they got in a very tricky situation, took on a ton uh, of new debt, so that wasn't really an issue, but they weren't exactly at the greatest terms. The point being, like Hunt said, uh, it's a, it's, the pandemic had a huge impact on the company. Um, and I think the, the cash flows we're seeing now appear to be better than they actually are. And over the course of the next year or so, um, I think we may have a better opportunity to buy the, the stock at, at a lower price. Um, we'll see whether I'm right about that or not. Um, I'll pause there before we jump into the next two. Um, if you've got any more, more questions? Well, I think, I, I think, yeah, I think, I think our goal here is to um, try to come up with two a week. Uh, over 50 weeks, that's 100 companies. And for those who may have missed the last week or two of calls, uh, we're, we're kind of reviewing the companies that have come public. I mean, we, we think the equity market's pretty richly valued, and we're looking for the companies that, uh, that despite a very high valuation in the equity market, you can expect significant appreciation from. And the two that – so we're reviewing – I mean, hundreds of companies came public, especially if you include all the stacks, uh, maybe thousands. And so we're kind of going through them. And what we're looking for is companies that – didn't need to go public. In other words, they're generating enough cash flow, so they didn't need to do it for financing, but where the the uh, owners and the management uh, decided that rather than sell to someone, uh, they're better off going public and that, that they could build, you know, if they if they took something that was worth $10 million and made it worth $200 million, that rather than sell for $200 million, they could turn it into $2 billion. And so we're looking for companies that have good balance sheets, don't have cash burn, have good cash flow characteristics, and Airbnb and Roblox are companies that have come public that do have those characteristics. That being said, uh, we have two more to cover uh, uh, today, and, and we'll try to keep up the pace of uh, two a week. We think that you know if we look at 100, the chances are we'll find two or three that we're really quite comfortable with. And uh, and. But everyone has to make their own decision. Someone may look at Roblox and say, I really like that. I like gaming. I think they have. But, you know, in investing, you have to make up your own mind. But with that, over to you, Mike. Uh, I'm one that we've talked about before, and that's Snowflake. But over to Mike on Snowflake. Yeah. So, so yeah, let's start with Snowflake. Um, and um, we've talked about Snowflake quite a bit on this call. It's a... Um, it is a data warehousing solution that has gotten significant traction, grown very, very quickly. Um, we've talked about the challenges, potentially. This is what we discussed earlier in the year, is that <clears throat> the company um, runs its service on Amazon Web Services, which is technically, in a way, a competitor to, uh, to, to them because they offer data warehousing as well. 
Um, and again, earlier in the year, we talked a bit about this. The, the product offering that, that Snowflake has is different, distinctly different than the product offering that Amazon has. And then we also discussed about the fact that, well, Amazon could probably copy <clears throat> um, could, could copy Snowflake. Um, well, that is possible. I, I don't think that's necessarily likely, and I don't think it'll be a, a, a thing that's that large of a risk to the company. Um, from a valuation perspective, um, you know, we look at valuations a couple different ways. Obviously, on this call, we talk a lot about cash flows. Um, and a lot of investors, myself included, I always look at a company first from the perspective of, okay, if I capitalize the cash flows of the company now, and I have a perspective on where the company is going, uh, that's better than what the, or different than what analysts and, and the market suggest, maybe I can buy a company, a great company at a good price. Um, but if you do just kind of cash flow evaluation on a, on a company like Snowflake, they don't generate enough cash flow. And that's partly because they pump so much money into, into their uh, SG&A, uh, really the, the, their sales and marketing expenses. Um, <clears throat> so as an example, their SG&A is approximately equal to the revenue and actually for the year ended sometimes even more. Uh, so when we talk about the companies that have um, need to come public versus not need to come public, in, in the case of Snowflake, it's they're taking that funding and pumping it directly into, um, into SG&A because they are able to grow very fast. The reason it was such a spectacular IPO is that not many companies had come public at that point with that high of a growth rate in revenue for um, at their size. Yeah, I think the other one we were going to cover today is Palantir, and I think we ought to bump it to next week. Uh, Mike and I like the Snowflake business model better than the Palantir business model because Palantir has a great deal of government work, and Snowflake is basically designed for businesses of all sizes. And the way I think of Snowflake is, uh, you know, everyone is, is inclined to use uh, cloud services, in other words, other people's servers. And, uh, uh, and of course, Amazon leads that, and then kind of Microsoft is in second position, and, and uh, I guess Google's in third position, and then maybe it drops down to Oracle. Uh, the um, the uh, uh, I've said this before many, many Wednesdays ago, but I have a friend who uh, has a uh, biotech development company with about, you know, a dozen scientists. And uh, he, he uh, this will finish out the hour, but it's funny. It'll, it'll give you some illustration of why people are inclined to use cloud, uh, you know, Amazon servers or, or, or uh, Microsoft servers. He, uh, he uh, was visited by a uh, Chinese pharmaceutical company, sent very attractive lady, uh, you know, completely proficient in English. And of course, the scientists uh, vied with uh, each other to take her to lunch or take her to dinner and whatnot. She spent a couple of weeks doing due diligence. And then uh, about three or four days after she left to go back to China, uh, their servers were completely cleaned out. 
And I, I said to my friend, I said, oh, this is bad. They, they got all your intellectual property. And my friend said, oh, actually, we're not too worried about that. Our dozen scientists are so uh, disorganized and chaotic that we, we don't think they'll be able to make any sense out of what they cleared off our servers. Uh, and I said, well, what are you going to do now? He says, oh, that's clear. Uh, we had, you know, very good uh, 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 security uh, on our servers, the best that money could buy. But we're just going to go to Amazon Web Services because we think they have better security than we could possibly arrange on our own servers. So to the extent that everyone, you know, everyone, I mean, like the CIA, I think, uses Amazon Web Services, to the extent that this is happening, I think the role for Snowflake is, do you, do you, do you want someone interacting with you who's going to organize your I lost use of AWS, uh, or uh, or you know, or do you uh, you know, or do you you know, or do you do you need Snowflake? And with that, we'll have Mike finish out. When we look at the ways in your risk as far as uh, operating a business that has significant data assets, uh, your options are to run it locally or uh, today, running in the cloud and running it locally is becoming increasingly difficult because the IT, the complexities of the IT infrastructure that you would need to have in place that would be even just on par with the standard AWS implementation are um, are significantly challenging. Um, and as uh, as Diana mentioned earlier, uh, we. That there are quite a few companies that are coming up that provide um, a cybersecurity as a service to wrap around and further enhance cloud services. I, I think it's a no-brainer to have your, your build your business in the cloud these days. I think that there will always be a risk, and Snowflake won't get you around that. Amazon won't get you around it completely, but it's better than the uh, than trying to, to to host it yourself. And uh, with that, we pretty much run out of time. But uh, I think uh, while I say we'll, you know, we're we're going to focus on doing two a week or trying to find two a week. I think next week we'll talk to them about Palantir, and we'll probably get into Snowflake in some more detail. I mean, really, what we're looking for is we're looking for something that that you know where Mike's partnership has made an awful lot of it capital gains from its uh, interest in NVIDIA. So we're really, we're really, we want to review all these public companies, but what we really want to find is someone who has very strong cash flow, who doesn't need to go public, who doesn't need to sell stock. And, uh, you know, Snowflake may be one of those companies. And uh, as Mike said, it's, it's providing service to business uh, rather than, you know, uh, 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 these other things, which, we, we view as having, you know, more vulnerability. So then the question becomes uh, how, you know, is Snowflake just too expensive to think about? But Mike and I will, uh, especially Mike, will have uh, more on that next week. In the meantime, everyone stay healthy and stay safe. Take care. joining us this week. Please tune in to us again next week as we'll be back on Wednesday. As a reminder, 
Nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you.